Welcome to Redeemer Church here in the St. John's campus, and it's great to be with you again. My name is Ron Beckering, and I'm the director of high school and college ministry at our DeWitt campus, and it is just a joy for me to be with you, uh, worshiping with you this morning. Uh, this morning, we're going to continue this, the series that we're working on. Uh, we're going to continue that series that we're working on about Elijah, who was a champion of God's cause. Uh, what we're going to be tackling today is a lesson in obedience, what it means for us to be obedient to what God has given us and to what God has called us to do. Uh, uh, Elijah gets put in an uncomfortable spot this week, but we will see how God's provisions can impact us on multiple levels and, and what our response to him should be. All right, our sermon this morning is coming out of First Kings uh, chapter 17, if you want to follow along in the Bible. We're going to be looking at verses 8 through 24 with this morning's message. Now, toward the end of the last century, there were scholars and those who study culture, history, anthropology, and especially sociology, predicting that the first de- by the first decade of the 21st century, the United States would experience a, a, a decline in all forms of religion. They predicted that any belief in a, in a transcendent God would become a relic of the past. So in other words, what they said, they said, if faith was still a value for people in our land, it would be something that would be looked at as old news. Now these are the same people that went on to say that because so much is being discovered about life, its origin, and the created order, the scientific realm, that any understanding or worship of any kind of God would be totally obsolete in the 21st century. And it would basically be practiced only by a small minority in our land. That's what was being said 20 to 25 years ago. Now, one of George Gallup's polls in 2016 showed that 89% of the people in America say that they believe in God. Now, whether or not they are in the building is a, is a whole other question, but we look around us today and we see that there are major religions uh, and, and minor faiths, cults, and all kinds of worship entities. We have m- both more and various religious beliefs all around us in America today, more than any before in our history. And you may have heard it said that religion is the, opio- is the opiate of the world. And if I'm asking what does that mean, evidently it means that we're addicted to religion. We look at scholars who predicted the demise of worship as we know it, and we see how they were totally and radically wrong. But the downside is that there are so many different faiths and so many different beliefs. There's so many denominations, so many religions, belief systems, it's, guys, it's hard to know if someone's worshiping the true God or worshiping a false God. We are such a pluralistic and secular society that in, that, that in the middle of all of these forms of faith, in the middle of them all, a lot of us want to shout out, will the real God please stand up? How do we determine who the real God is? We need spiritual guides. We need men and women with the spiritual gift of discernment who can say, this is true or that's not true. That this is the real God and that's a false God. That this is valid and this is invalid. 
But do you know what we find in our culture? We hear people say all the time, well, we're all going to the same place, so it really doesn't matter. And all religions are, and faiths are basically the same. Listen carefully, friends. I want to tell you what that means if you believe that this morning. It means that you've spent very little time studying our faith or any belief system. You've been misinformed because we have to ask fundamental questions about what we believe. The first question we ask is, who am I? And that's your question of identity. We ask, where did I come from? The question of origin. Why am I here? That's the question of purpose. Where am I going? That's the question of destiny. Then we look at, at that which is authoritative and we ask, how do we really know? So we ask these four or five big questions and then we put them against the multitudes of faiths and religions and denominations that are represented in our culture and we get radically different answers. Guys, all religions are not the same. All faiths are not the same. And we need guides today who will help us navigate through the confusion and enable us to see the real God. And one such navigator in the 8th century was named Elijah. Amen, we're done. No, I'm just kidding. Um, I want to give you a little background on where we're headed today. Never before in this history of Israel had there been so much paganism and so much pluralism. It had been instituted and sanctioned by the, queen, uh, by the king and queen of Israel. So not until King Ahab and Jezebel came to the throne was there a deliberate intention by a leader of the nation to diversify and to bring into the land so much pagan worship and idolatry. They brought in the worship of Baal and 400 Baal prophets who were paid by the state. The worship of Astareth with its sexual goddesses and prophets was brought in and paid for by the state. Those who worshipped the true and living God of Israel were either killed or sent into hiding. We know that about 7,000 believers were living in caves, fearing for their lives. So in this background, we find a unique moment in history when there were all kinds of beliefs, all kinds of shrines, all kinds of temples, all kinds of altars in high places, and varied, a varied menu of people of, for Israel to worship. And actually, that's not unlike it is for us today. In the midst of it all, though, Elijah comes on the scene. He stands up and he says, Here is the real God. God was preparing Elijah for a dramatic moment in history that we'll talk about next week as we'll see Elijah on Mount Carmel. Last week, Pastor Rod was here and talked about how Elijah the Tishbite came back from the boondocks. We, we don't know much more about him. We only know that he was from a desert area and he appeared as God's prophet. God told him, Elijah, go and tell King Ahab, it's not going to rain until you give the word. Elijah had read Deuteronomy 11. He understood the Old Testament prophecy that said, when the people turn to false gods and their lives become godless, I will judge the people and I will not let it rain until I give my word. So Elijah, he knew what was going to happen when God told him that. So he went to King Ahab 
and said, guess what, dude? It's not going to rain. There's not even going to be any dew until God gives me the word to take this plague, this famine, away from the people of Israel. This will be God's judgment on your sin. So Elijah became this big-time palace preacher after he said that. And so God said to him, Elijah, I want you to go hide. I want you to take some time off. So God sent him to a place called Kareth, which was a rocky wilderness across the Jordan River. The word Kareth literally means to be cut off. That's what happened to Elijah. He was cut off, he was alone, and he was in hiding. But that was part of God's preparation for Elijah, for him to be the one who would be able to discern, to be able to point out to all the people of Israel, here is the real God, and there are the false gods. This time away was all about preparation for Elijah. I think God was trying to teach him the same thing that God's trying to teach every one of us. You might be in the middle of a tough time yourself right now. And you're saying, what is God trying to teach me? I would suggest to you that he's trying to teach you to be obedient. To live it one day at a time. Be dependent on him. I think that's it. That's how Elijah the Tishbite suddenly awakened to be a man of God. Be obedient. Live one day at a time and be totally dependent on God. Now during the time he was camped out near the brook of Kareth, there were birds who came in and fed him food that God provided. And he provided every need that Elijah had. The brook was natural, and the ravens were supernatural, but one day the brook dried up. And you talked last week about how we all know what it's like for our brooks to dry up, a relationship or a job to dry up, our passion for life dries up, our health dries up. We, we know about dried up brooks. We've gone through those moments in our lives. And now about a year or so later, God speaks to Elijah again and says, You've been in Kareth, you've been cut off, you've been alone, you've been in hiding, the brook is dried up, now I want you to go to Zarephath. Zarephath is a name that means to melt. You ask, where is Zarephath? Kareth is, a, is, is way down in the area of the Dead Sea, it's way down by the Dead Sea. And now God's asking Elijah to travel about 75 to 100 miles north and west all along the way to the coastal area uh, of the Mediterranean Sea. And that's going to be important later on. Um, I want you to remember that fact. All along, the, all along the Mediterranean Sea was Gentile country in Sidon. Now, do you want to make a wild guess as to who the king of Sidon was? It was Jezebel's dad. So here's Elijah going from Kareth to Zarephath through all kinds of territories, up and down over mountains, and there's an all-point bulletin out for the king, from the king, that read, Elijah, wanted, dead, or alive. Kill Elijah on sight if you see him. Elijah was not a popular man with Ahab or his wife Jezebel, but he goes now from being cut off in Kareth he goes from being cut off in Kareth, he goes to being melted down in Zarephath. 
let me ask you this. If you take gold and heat it up, what happens? It melts. It melts. And then there's a skim across the top of it, which is called the dross. And you skim off the dross, and that's the impure part of the gold. And then you get the, uh, the beautiful, pure gold that's beneath it. And that's exactly what God was doing with Elijah. Elijah said, it's bad enough to be alone, to be cut off and have my brook dry up. Now I have to go to Zarephath? He says, God, what are you doing to me? Now I want you to notice something. There is one verse here that tells us that God knew where Elijah was and that he still has his best interest at heart. But I think that's like God. God always knows where we are. He always knows where we are. He knows what's happening in our lives. He doesn't worry about those things. He's got it under control. He knows all about us. God knows where we're going, and he knows where he'd like us to be. And if we are obedient to him, there is always going to be a time of preparation. So here is Elijah cut off. Here's Elijah being cut down, being melted, and what he's doing is becoming humbled. Elijah said, surely there are some people in Israel who can look after me. No, God said, go to Zarephath. There's a poor widow there gathering sticks to build a fire. Now, this is the focus of what I want to tell you today. This is a story of God's provision for us. Because of the famine, remember there had been no rain or dew for over a year, and this widow that we're talking to had just enough oil and just enough flour left to prepare one meal for her son and her family. Then they were going to have to starve to death. It was that severe. There was no rain for over a year. She was dirt poor. She was at the end of her means. And Elijah shows up and said, bring me some water and make a bread cake with your hand. She says, make bread? I don't have enough for my son and me. Just one last meal. But Elijah says... Don't worry, God will provide. God will provide. Because then we see something absolutely incredible take place. The woman was obedient, and she made the bread cake. And every morning after that, she looked in that flour barrel, and there was enough flour for another meal. And there was enough oil for another meal. And every night there was enough flour and there was enough oil and that went on for a year and then it went on for two years. It was a new miracle every day. Isn't that something? Elijah began to teach this pagan woman about the true and living God of Israel. It gives me goosebumps. He began to read and to study the scriptures with her, praying with her day after day, and she sees this miraculous multiplication of oil, flour, and provision take place. Can you imagine in the morning when that woman got up every morning and she looked in that flower bed and she sang, Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Oh man, it would be off the chart. She'd be, uh, I don't know if she'd sing that song, but she'd sing, yeah, I mean, she'd be happy. 
And all the while, God was teaching this woman about how important stewardship, that, that, that an important stewardship lesson that we desperately need to learn from our faith journey. It's about the miracle of multiplication. He's also teaching Elijah obedience, teaching him to live one day at a time, teaching Elijah how to depend upon God. Now, I'm sure Elijah did not want to go to Zarephath. I'm positive he did not want to go there. He didn't want to go outside of Israel. He didn't want to go to the pagan land that was full of Gentiles. He knew that idol worship was there, built into their culture. But he went anyway because that's what God told him to do. You see, Elijah was being trained to be a spiritual guide for all of God's people so that they could know the real God as opposed to to a phony God. He was being taught about real worship compared to emotional, shallow, meaningless worship. He was, Elijah was to discover that the real God is a God not of the insiders, but of the outsiders. And if you want more proof, you take a look in the New Testament when you get home at Luke Chapter 4, 25 through 27, you're going to find a story about when Jesus went back to Nazareth, his hometown, to preach his first sermon. He was already a prophet of some renown at that time. The, fo- the hometown folks knew who he was. They had heard about him. And here he goes back to the synagogue. And Jesus was a little boy who grew up as a carpenter's son who, whose legitimacy was perfectly in question. But he comes back to preach a sermon in that synagogue and his text was the passage of Scripture that we're talking about this morning. That's what he read. He told the Jews that God sent Elijah, not to them, but instead to a foreigner. And then he drew the parallel to himself. When he reads this passage, the people in the synagogue want to kill him. They jumped up, mobbed him, pushed him to the edge of a hill, which the town was built on. And they would have pushed him over the cliff, but somehow Jesus walks through the crowd and escapes. Uh, Why in the world was that congregation in Nazareth so upset? Why did the Jews immediately want to kill their hometown prophet? I want to offer three reasons this morning, and the process reminds us about the nature of God. The first one is that the real God is a God of the outsiders. God honored that woman in Zarephath, and the people said, weren't there some people in Israel who could have looked after God's servant? Why did they have to go to the outsider? I want you to remember something. Women had no status in that day. A slave actually had more rights than a woman during that time. You see see this. Um... She was an outsider, and I'm pretty sure that Elijah might have said, God, can't you find a a, a rich merchant in Israel to look after me during this time instead of this poor woman who's a non-Jew? So to a Jew, she was a four-time loser. She was a gender outsider in the fact that she was a woman. She was a moral outsider because she worshipped pagan gods. She didn't know anything about morality or, or the worship of Yahweh. Certainly, she was an economic outsider. She was dirt poor. She just had enough oil and enough flour to prepare one more meal and then starved to death. 
And we also know that she was a racial outsider. She was a Gentile. And Jews hated the Gentiles. They didn't have a chance with God, not the true and living God of Israel. She was an outsider. And when Jesus honored the outsider, the Israelites said, eh, we'll just kill him. But here's the truth of the Bible, friends. The real God is the God of the outsiders because the real God is a God of grace and he's a God of forgiveness and he's a God of the second chance. He's a God who reaches out and cuts across all barriers. He breaks down everything that keeps us apart from other people. Wherever people are today on this planet, however low they are, however profane, however immoral, however violent, however sick, the real God is a God of the outsider, and he offers his grace to all of them. To the woman, she was used by God to save Elijah. And we're going to see that Elijah was used to save her. The concept of God as a God of the outsider is kind of a difficult idea for the church people like us to grasp. Because when we commit our lives to Christ, when we attend church or even join a church and become a member, we think of that like a status or, or, or some kind of privilege. We give support to what benefits us. But Jesus had a different idea. He said, God is a God of the outsider. This facility is just a tool to reach those who aren't here yet. And a big share of our money should be directed to telling the good news and reaching those who have yet to accept Christ as their Lord and Savior. Sadly, in this case, membership is not about privilege, but about learning to be a missionary so that those who are lost can be found. It's not about us. It's about those in the community who have yet to hear of Christ's redeeming love. Remember, Jesus told a story about a shepherd who left 99 of his sheep to find that one that was missing. That one lost sheep. That story was a picture of God, the God of the outsiders. Last week, Pastor Rod talked about how in 2010 we tried to do a Saturday night service at our DeWitt campus. He talked about some of the ways that adding a new service on another day might benefit the church in being good stewards of our classroom space and the parking and our seats and worship. But beyond all those things was a much bigger reason we wanted to reach the lost in DeWitt to open, more, to open more doors to provide one more opportunity for people to come to a community who didn't have a church home yet to find a place there. There are over 20,000 people who call DeWitt City and Township home. And we know that nationally, about 50 to 60% of any community is outside of the church. So our vision is to do everything we can to carry out the great commission of Jesus to go and make disciples of all people. Saturday evening was more than an option, uh, was one more option than in, in a family schedule. What it was for us was a mission opportunity for many of us to serve and to teach and to usher and to greet and to do nursery so that outsiders and insiders can get connected with the love and life of Jesus Christ. Now secondly, the real God is a living God. In verses 1 and 12 of this chapter, we read that the woman says, the living God of Israel. She knew the difference between the God of Israel and those dead pagan gods of Baal and Ashtoreth. 
that she had been worshiping. She said, we're worshiping the living God, the God that provides miracles of oil and flour after day after day after day. She picks up on the activity of God in her life. I think in our generation, in our time, I think we too worship idols. Whenever we make something in our own image, anybody who worships a God that they have totally described and totally built in the fabric of their own being, if we worship a God who never says to us no or go or never leads us into areas that will be foreign to us, we're worshiping an idol. Idols don't stretch us. They don't challenge us to take a leap of faith. They're comfortable. They're safe. But the living God is different. He is sovereign, and he operates strangely and mysteriously. Remember, the Bible says, as the heavens are higher than the earth, so God's ways are higher than your ways and my ways. The real God is a wild kind of God. He's a living God. He's a God of grace to the outsiders. He's a God of risk and opportunity. So we have Elijah here who comes, sees the many different styles of worship and faith, all kinds of stuff, and he says, I want to show you the real God. God is preparing Elijah as a man of God, teaching him obedience to live one day at a time and to be dependent upon him and only him. He was teaching him how to be a guide to all kinds of people and point out which is real and which is not real. Elijah is teaching us that the real God is a God of grace and a God of to the outsiders. Now third, we learn that the real God is a God of multiplication. This story of Elijah and the widow of Zarephath is a great lesson in stewardship. It gives us a great picture of, of, of a God who will create miracles in our lives if we're obedient to him. One of the key lessons that I've learned in my life is that, that our God wants all of us to live in that zone of his blessing. He wants us to hang out there. The Bible tells us in Romans 8, 31 and 32 that if God is for us, who could possibly be against us? Since he did not spare even his own son but gave him up for us all. Won't he also give us everything else? God desires to bless us. And when we use that word bless, we're talking about being on the receiving end of tangible and intangible favor of God. Now for that to make sense, I think it's important for us to understand several things. One, God is the blesser. God is the blesser. Everything we have comes from him. Our God is a loving, generous, and good God. And because of that, we are blessed so that we can become a blessing to others. But to, relect, uh, but to reflect the favor of God in tangible and intangible ways, we, we have to understand how to receive those blessings from God. Before we can reflect them to others, we have to understand what we're doing because we can't reflect something we don't have. We need God's blessing. Our culture today tells us that that's what's ours is ours, our gifts, our abilities, our money, it's all mine. But those, are who, but those who are Christ followers realize that we are simply managers of what God has given. We are not owners. So this difference between managing and owning is a huge concept. 
And it's a concept that we have to understand if we're ever going to move into the place where God can bless us. The widow of Zarephath was, was not initially a follower of the true God. But she was obedient when Elijah asked for that last bit of bread and that last bit of water that she had. She risked everything. She held nothing back, and God honored her faithful response. God is a God of miracles, but he asks us to, one, be obedient, two, to live one day at a time, and three, to be dependent on not ourselves, but on him. At Redeemer, it has always been our policy to support not just what benefits us as a congregation, but ministry that will benefit the outsider as well. And that's what we ask of each, purpose, uh, of each person who attends this church. We are committed to being generous Christ followers. And I would never ask that of you if I didn't firmly believe that we serve a God who will do the miraculous and multiply whatever we give in ways that we can't imagine. As Christ followers, we've got to learn how to manage what God has entrusted to us and then reflect the one who has blessed us. We have to acknowledge God's goodness. Churches all across America today are struggling financially, and lots of them are United Methodist churches in our annual conference. And in part because lots and lots of Christians have not learned this basic teaching. The average per capita given nationwide and in mainline churches is under 3% of income. That's not giving generously from what God has given to us. And it's no wonder that our lives are not reflecting more of God's blessings and God's work in the world is suffering as a result. So often we hear the complaint, the church is only interested in money. But that's not the case. We're interested in a whole lot more, of a, a lot more of other things. But Jesus did talk about money more than he talked about heaven, more than he talked about hell, faith, or belief. One out of every eight verses in the New Testament has to do with material possessions. 30% of his parables were about money, material possessions, and stuff that we have. For Jesus, it was a pretty important subject. Of all the practices that, 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 of all the practices that you and I could be involved in, giving God our best is one of the keys to staying in the zone of God's blessing. Let me close by saying again that the real God is a living God who shows mercy and grace, who offers forgiveness and hope, but he also demands justice and obedience. He is a God of the outsider who in love said that his desire was that no one would perish but that all would come to repentance. And just like he did for that widow in Zarephath, God will multiply what we are willing to give him as we follow him in obedience to his word. We do that, friends, one day at a time. Let's pray. Father, we are we're so tempted to say to ourselves that, that my power and the strength of my hands have produced all that I have, you know, whether it's my money or my abilities or my life. And we forget sometimes, God, that, 
that, Lord, you are God, and you give us the ability to do anything in this life. You give us the ability to provide for all that we have and give us the ability to work and to love and to serve. Gracious God, forgive our reluctance to trust you. May this day be a new beginning for some of us when we say, for me it's going to be more about words. I'm going to follow Christ in every part of my life as well. And I'm going to lead. I'm going to lead only as you can. Teach us, Lord, to trust you and to walk with you as Elijah did in obedience. Doing it one day at a time. We do love you, Jesus. Amen.